The Old Testament lesson today is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 72 of your Pew Bible. The Ten Commandments offer us a window into the nature of God and his plan for us to live in a loving and responsible manner. Although Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf, the commandments still provide us with a benchmark for righteous living. A reading from Exodus chapter 20, beginning with the first verse. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. There have been a number of attempts to create lists of the most influential documents in history. Some have placed documents like the Rosetta Stone as the most influential in history, or the Magna Carta, Or others have said that the Declaration of Independence had the most influence on history. But I think the most compelling argument can be made for the document that we just had read for us by Graham a moment ago, the Ten Commandments, God's directives for his people. Imagine for a moment that the Ten Commandments were never introduced to history, and all the civilizations that came thereafter didn't have laws such as, you shall not murder, or even you shall not steal. 
we consider societies like that, we realize the enormous influence of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments had an influence on my own life. I grew up in a household and in a school and in a town where the Ten Commandments were followed. They were known. They were taught. Most strikingly, the command about the Sabbath is something that we really lived into. We followed it religiously. We woke up as a family. We went to church in the morning. We went to church again in the evening. Two different worship services, two different sermons from the pastor. And in the hours between the morning and evening services, we rested. We had a meal together. We played board games. All of us in our teenage years had part-time jobs throughout the week. We didn't go to work on Sundays because those businesses were closed. We observed the Sabbath. Now, you might look back on that and say, wow, that was really legalistic. And in a certain sense, it was. But I'll tell you what, it was also really beautiful to have a whole community decide together they would rest for a whole day. I remember that time with my family. It was just all about relationship. We just hung out together. I'd give just about anything to go back in time and experience one of those Sabbath rest days with my family. Relationship is really what the Ten Commandments are rooted in. Maybe you notice that as we begin to read the chapter, before God starts giving his commands, he reminds his people of this relationship. Exodus 20, verse 2, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before God starts giving commands, he reminds us of his relationship with us. I am your God. I am your Savior. You are those whom I have saved. It's relationship. And then the rules follow. We're going to read through all Ten Commandments today. The sermon will be about five minutes longer than usual. But I'll read through all of them. But before we do, maybe you're still sitting there thinking, why are we focusing on the law? Isn't this a gospel church? Why would we be focusing on the law of God? Are we, aren't we no longer under the law, but under grace? In fact, that's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Maybe you know this verse. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So maybe we don't need to think about the law, since we're not under it anymore. We're under grace. Ah, but listen to what it says in the very next verse, Romans 6, verse 15. What then, are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. Now say these three words with me. By no means, right? And the rest of that chapter goes on to describe our obedience to righteousness. It says you're either going to be obedient to your sin or you'll be obedient to righteousness. God calls us into righteous living even though we are under grace. So what is our relationship with the law? What are the uses of the law for those of us who are under grace? The reformers had to ask that question and answer it. The reformers in the 16th century, John Calvin, Martin Luther, these theologians who were reacting against all the legalism that had come to spread through the Roman Catholic Church. They preached the gospel. They had uh, this uh, this, um, environment of living under grace, but they still had to answer the question, then what is the use of the law? And they came up with three uses of the law, which I'm going to briefly describe before we read through the Ten Commandments. The first of the three uses of the law, according to the Reformers, is what we call the civil use. 
or think about this as the societal use. Societies that follow the Ten Commandments operate better. Imagine a society without them. So this is the civil use of the law. The second one is what I call the measuring stick. I've updated the language just a little bit to make it more relevant for us. The the reformers called this the pedagogical use of the law. I call it the measuring stick. What I mean by that is the law is a standard by which we measure our lives against, realizing that we are imperfect. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love our neighbors perfectly, which is the heart of the law. And when we realize that, we're driven to our knees asking God for forgiveness. In other words, the law drives us to the gospel. We do this every week here at Standwich Church. We say the prayer of confession before coming to the communion table. And we confess that we have not followed God's law perfectly. It's that measuring stick. It's that standard by which God tells us, you need me. You need a savior. You need forgiveness. How would we know that we are sinning if there was no law? The third use of the law is what I call the grateful response. When we realize that God has forgiven us for not measuring up, for falling short, we might ask, what can I do to please God now, to worship him, to honor him with my life? And then we get this invitation to come right back to this law, this standard of living. Notice with me that none of these three uses of the law have to do with earning salvation. That's really what the reformers were operating against, this idea that if if I follow God's law, then I will get to go to heaven. If I'm good enough, then he will reward me. That's not a use of the law. We're going to learn this in a few minutes after I go through them, what Jesus has done on our behalf. He's already accomplished that for us. But we still have this relationship with the law, both in a societal sense, but also as a measuring stick to realize our need for forgiveness And then a grateful response where we say, now, God, I want to honor you with my life by living out your law, which is not a burden anymore, but it's a grateful response for what you've done. So now that we know these uses of the law, I'm actually going to take the time to go through all 10 of them. And I want us to consider these uses, these three uses in the back of your mind as I go through the 10. I will read them. I'll give very brief explanation of them, and then we'll talk about it again at the end. So let's go through the 10 commandments. Commandment number one, verse three of our reading today. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, the Ten Commandments are rooted in relationship. God has just reminded God's people of who he is and who we are. We're in relationship with one another, and God tries to clear up this understanding immediately. There's no one else in the equation. Notice the lowercase g. You shall have no other gods before me. There is only one true God, and that is the God of the Bible, the God who spoke the Ten Commandments, the God who brought God's people out of the land of Egypt. There are no other gods. Let this be a check for us. Are there any other gods that we've given our hearts to? Maybe it's Buddha. Maybe it's Krishna. Maybe it's the God of self. God says, have no other gods before me. Commandment number two gets a little bit more specific in how this plays out. It's really an extension of that first command. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, this one might feel a little bit antiquated. I'm guessing that there's no one in this room who has a carved image at home sitting on a shelf somewhere that you bow down to. Does anybody want to confess if you have that? No? I'm just, I'm guessing that's probably not a thing. However, what's relatable here for us? What's God getting at here? People tend to make things with our own human hands, create things, systems or objects or careers that we try to put our trust in on some level. We make things with our own human hands, and we may not bow down to them, you know, on our knees, but we might give our hearts over on some level of trust to those things. God says, don't do that. Don't create something and then put your trust in it. I am the Lord your God. And God gives the very reason why he asks us not to do this. The verse continues, for, God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. What does that word jealous mean when God says it? It doesn't mean envious. Envy says, you have something that I want. We're going to look at covetousness in the last commandment. Same thing. Envy says, you have something that I want. Now, God doesn't look at us and get envious of something we have that he doesn't have. He's God. He created it all. But he's jealous. Jealousy doesn't say, I want your stuff. Jealousy says, it's you that I want. You, I want your heart. I want to be in a relationship with you. And when God sees us have other gods, when God sees us create things with our human hands that we put our trust in, he says, I'm jealous for you. It's you I want in relationship with me. I want your heart. And listen to the way his grace is embedded right here in the law when he talks about the consequences of when we don't do this right. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's embedded grace in the law here by saying, look, if you get this wrong, if you give your heart over to created things, if you bow down to false gods who aren't me, there will be consequences in the generations, three to four generations. Is there anybody here who's living in the consequences of the sins of your fathers or grandparents? That's how it works. It goes, I saw some pivot guys raising your hand. You get it. But look at the grace here. He says, but to those who get this right, who give your hearts over to the one true God, to me, I will bless thousands of generations on account of that faithfulness. Amen. There's a grace there. Commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Mm, why is this so important to God, the name of the Lord? We've been seeing it throughout the narrative since we started in September with Genesis 1. The name of God is very important to God. It's very important throughout Scripture. The people of God at this point in the story, they knew God's name to be Yahweh. I am who I am. In other words, the highest authority in the whole universe, the one that we cannot name, we can't have authority over him, Yahweh. We know the name of God as the name of Jesus. As the New Testament describes it, the name above all names. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the name of Jesus is the highest name, the Lord of Lords. This is the highest name in the universe. Not only that, God's name indicates that God is accessible to us. 
He is intimately in relationship with us. Jesus, friend of sinners. This is a friend of mine. He is my authority. He is my savior. He is my friend. And when I hear people use his name as a profanity, it hurts. Do you have this experience? Be watching a TV show or something, and somebody is offended or hurt or something, and they say, Jesus Christ. Like it's a profanity. I am, I am seriously offended by that. That's my savior. That's my friend. Or when somebody says, God damn it. I say, whoa. Whose authority are you speaking with here? God is very serious about this. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Would you say that about your friend? Would you turn their name into a cuss word? God's in relationship with us. We honor his name. Commandment number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Holy just means different or set apart. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. I mentioned the Sabbath ritual of my household when I was growing up. And as I've been preparing for this sermon, I've been thinking about it in my own household, and I'm realizing I'm not doing as good of a job as my parents did. I'm just kind of feeling that. I want to be a little bit more legalistic. Yes, that's a phrase you never thought Nathan Hart would say. I want to be a little bit more legalistic about the Sabbath because there's a blessing in it. It's a gift to families to set apart a day You worship God and just spend time together with no agenda. Commandment number five, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I love what the Apostle Paul says about this commandment. He quotes it in Ephesians 6, verse 2. And he says, this is the first command with a promise. It's got a promise attached right to it. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that, your Lord, that the Lord your God is giving you. When we live in households where mom and dad are honored and respected and, and there's har- the harmonious relationship in that way, there is peace, there's blessing. You live long in the land that God is giving you. Good things come as a result of following this command. Now, I also realize this commandment is complicated because earthly fathers and mothers they're flawed. They're imperfect. Some of us grew up with fathers and mothers who wounded us. In this commandment, you're like, wow, Lord, why would you ask me to honor people who have wounded me? We were talking about this as pastors this week, thinking about this commandment and how one might follow it if they were raised by parents who treated them badly. And Gina Choi had this wonderful insight. She said, maybe with this one, when you honor your father, you can honor your heavenly father who is perfect. And he will show you ways to bless your imperfect earthly parents. I really like that. The New Testament gives us instruction on how to bless even those who have hurt us. To bless them, to honor them in some way that the heavenly father will show us. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. 
I like this section of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery because I feel like I can just sail right through them, you know? I'm not going to murder anybody. I know I'm not going to commit adultery. Let's just go on to the next commandment. And then I realize, oh, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't let me off the hook so easily. You know the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus references these two commands. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who has hatred in his heart towards a brother or sister is liable to the same judgment. Hatred in his heart is liable to the same judgment as a murderer, Jesus says. And he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who has thought with lustful intent about another person is liable to the same judgment. Oh, man. Hatred in your heart or lust towards someone else? You're breaking these commandments? Now I'm in trouble. Anyone else? Raise your hands. Just kidding. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Why does Jesus do that? What's happening here? Why in the Sermon on the Mount would he do this? Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount was going along so swimmingly. The meek shall inherit the earth. And all of a sudden he, he does this. What's he doing here? Well, he's, remember that measuring stick use of the law? Jesus is really raising the bar of the intentionality of the law. We think Jesus comes along and he lowers the bar. Don't worry about the law. It's all forgiveness. It's all grace now. Jesus doesn't quite do that. He actually raises that measuring stick, showing us that we don't measure up to the perfect law of God. Who among us can follow these laws perfectly? Now, I want to just kind of hold that intention for a moment. Why would Jesus raise the bar of the law in the Sermon on the Mount? Think about that. We're going to resolve it after we've read through the Ten Commandments. The ninth, or the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. We were reading through the Ten Commandments the other night um, as a family around the dinner table, and we got to this one, and Nancy told a story. She's given me permission to share it with you. She immediately remembered when she was four years old, I've seen pictures of her when she was four. She's just about the cutest thing you can imagine. But she tells this story of this commandment. She was in the grocery store checkout aisle with mom, with her mom. You can probably see where this story is going. There's all these racks of candy and gum next to her. Little four-year-old, adorable Nancy, those big brown innocent eyes, not so innocent. She grabbed a pack of gum and took it with her. And they left the store. A little while later, her mom asked her, Nancy, where did you get that gum? And she said, the neighbor, Kyle, gave it to me. (laughs) Then she was describing to her kids, she said, I was chewing that gum, and it tasted like guilt. (laughs) Tasted like shame. (laughs) Maybe some of us have stories like that from childhood, where you learned what it feels like to steal something. But this commandment is not just for those singular personal acts of thievery. We all grow up, and now I look around this room and I see people in charge of institutions and businesses and responsibilities. And I believe that this commandment is applicable to us as well. Are there any ways that we are stealing opportunities or resources from others in the way we operate in our spheres of influence? God says you shall not take something that's not yours. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now this has a bit of a a legal 
connotation. It feels like you're in a courtroom. I won't bear false witness about somebody if they're on trial. But I think it can be extrapolated and broadened to the way we talk in general about other people. I've been noticing lately there's just a lot of gossip going on. It's so easy to talk about others, isn't it? And you might comfort yourself by saying like, oh, everything I said was true, therefore it's not gossip. But I've noticed how easily gossip can slip into slander. Sitting around talking about somebody, maybe you just embellish the story a little bit. You're bearing false witness about your neighbor. God says, don't do that. There's a reason the New Testament is so specific on how to remedy this. When there's been lies told, when there's been slander, the New Testament in several places gives us specific instructions on how to repair those relationships. This is a common thing in the human relational activities. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or in the new translations, I think it says his Tesla or (laughs) his vacation house. Yes, I believe that's written right here. Or anything you see on your neighbor's Instagram feed or her TikTok account You shall not covet that. It's amazing, isn't it? In our culture, we've built an entire industry around coveting. Maybe you don't have Instagram or TikTok, but do you ever go over to your friend's house and you drive home and you think, man, that kitchen sink faucet? (laughs) Awesome. I wish I had one of those. Or to put it in relationships, maybe you say, man, my friend's spouse is hot. Or my friend's spouse is really much kinder than mine. I wish I had a spouse like that. I feel convicted. You shall not covet. Why is is this one of the Ten Commandments? It seems kind of harmless, doesn't it? I believe it's because when we do this, when we covet things that other people have, it robs us of the simple joy of being grateful for what God's given us. God's blessed us in so many ways. Imagine sitting in a a home with a roof over your head, with food on your plate, thinking, I wish I had something else. It robs us of gratitude, the joy that comes from that. So those were the Ten Commandments. I want to resolve that tension I raised just a couple of minutes ago by going through these, briefly, through these three uses of the law once again. The civil, the measuring stick, and the grateful response. First of all, the civil. Just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine a whole society that follows the Ten Commandments. Imagine a whole society where we believe in one God. We have no idols that we put our trust in. There's universal respect for the name of Jesus. Everybody observes the Sabbath once a week and enjoys the rest and the relationship therein. There's family harmony through the honoring of parents. There's no murders or even hatred. There's no adultery or even lust. There's no thievery Everyone speaks the truth about others. And there's no 
envy, just gratitude. When you put it that way, you see the beauty of the law, don't you? But secondly, the the measuring stick, we should ask ourselves, does our society measure up to that? Not even close. But on an individual level, is there anyone here who has observed the perfect law of God perfectly? Have you done all these things perfectly, even today? No, and when Jesus raises that bar, he's showing us that none of us will measure up if we have sin, which we all do. But he's also showing us that he is the one, the sinless one, who has come to perfectly fulfill the law. In fact, this is exactly what he says in Romans 5, or uh, Matthew 5, verse 17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, Jesus measures up. Jesus followed the perfect law of God perfectly. He was obedient to the command of God, even when the command of God says, go and take their place on the cross. He was obedient even unto death. He was obedient in loving his neighbor as himself because he took our place. He loved us. He did something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. He did something for us so that we wouldn't have to face the wrath of God, the punishment of all of our sins. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law, and he forgives us. That's the exchange we experience at the communion table. If you felt any conviction as I went through the Ten Commandments, that's God saying, come, come to the altar, as we say. The Father's arms are open wide. Jesus paid it all. The law leads us to the gospel. And then we ask ourselves, what might we do in response to such grace? What might we do in response to such love, to such faithfulness? Well, God says, I've already told you how to respond. And he invites us into his perfect law once again, that we might live these things out, not to earn salvation, but to tell him we're grateful. This is the standard of righteousness that he calls us to. So we say, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross in the freedom of your forgiveness. I will have no other gods before you. I won't put my trust in anything I've created with my hands. I won't take your name in vain anymore, especially knowing what you've done for me. I will observe the Sabbath because, Lord Jesus, you have earned the ultimate Sabbath rest for me by finishing the work on the cross. I will honor my father and my mother. I will not murder or hate others. I will not commit adultery or have lust. Lord, help me with these hatred and lust. I can't do this on my own. Holy Spirit, come and be faithful for me. I will not take what is not mine. I will only speak truth about those around me. I won't bear false witness. And Lord, help me to be grateful for all that you've given so that I won't covet the things that other people have around me. This is our grateful response to the beautiful, perfect, wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.